Welcome to the Narrative for Social Justice podcast, or for short, the N4SJ podcast. This podcast is part of the larger Narrative for Social Justice initiative, which emerged from the efforts of the International Society for the Study of Narrative. So I am your host for this inaugural episode. Uh, my name is Angela Du, she, her. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto's Department of English. My current work focuses on how Victorian novelists use the novel to imagine futures that looked different from the 19th century present for its female protagonists. My interests generally include the novel, feminist narrative theory, temporality, character, genre, gender and sexuality, periodical studies. I'm a member of the N4SJ podcast group and your host for today. And we have with us today, uh, Chiara Pellegrini um, as co-host and Cody Muir as our guest. And I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, Angela and Cody. My name is Chiara. I am a PhD candidate at, at Newcastle University in the UK. And I work at the intersection of narrative theory and trans studies. I work on contemporary literature and gender identity, and I work specifically on first-person narrators. I focus on what I broadly call gender-variant narrators, which include trans narrators, non-binary, intersex, non-gender narrator, fluidly gender narrators, all that I can, can kind of fit into this definition. And I work with a variety of genres as well, memoir, science fiction, literary fiction, historical fiction, and so on. And I'm also at the moment conceiving a potential postdoctoral uh, project about metaphors that are used in, in British uh, trans-exclusionary language, especially metaphors of space and their complicity with anti-immigration rhetoric, again, in the UK. And as well, responses from writers that look at different ways of conceptualizing space that might be useful in fighting this kind of language. Hi, everyone. I'm Cody Meir. I'm visiting assistant professor of game studies in the Department of Media Study at University of Buffalo SUNY. Um, all of my research and teaching uh, deals primarily with uh, narrative in games and especially uh, games that are focused on queer, feminist and trans stories and experiences. I co-direct the Paula Light Lab, which is a new media poetry and gaming lab at UB, focused especially on gender and sexuality and race. I also work with the LGBTQ video game archive, uh, where I've done some research and projects looking at queer representation in games. And finally, I'm also the uh, diversity officer for the Digital Games Research Association. And a lot of my work in the past couple of years has focused on what diversity work looks like in academic fields and disciplines um, and the many challenges and pitfalls that come with that. Cody, you are at the head of the N4SJ initiative, right? Yeah, I suppose that might be the most relevant thing right here. <laughs> uh, yes, I am. Um, I, I guess, yes, my technical title is the, the director of the so Narrative for Social Justice initiative that came out of uh, ISSN's uh, Diversity, Inclusion, and Equity Committee. I think I got that mixed up, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so I'm working with um, all of the different small groups that are part of the initiative, working on the podcast like this, which is so exciting, um, working on some small videos projects, um, and then also on other diversity and inclusion efforts uh, with ISSN. For this first episode, we were largely thinking around four questions that have to do with, um, with narrative and with social justice. And so I'll read them today, and then we'll just talk about them. So here are the questions. What does social justice mean to you? 
How does your work engage with narrative and social justice? Why do you think it's important for the study of narrative and narrative itself to engage with issues of social justice? Finally, what is narrative for social justice? Narratives that work towards or long for social justice. An intimidating set of questions. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 no big deal. Absolutely. It's big and wide ranging, but I, I'm so excited for this podcast because I think that these are some of the most pressing questions that uh, narrative studies broadly um, really need to grapple with. I guess I can dive in with what, you know, what my thoughts are. I, I think of when I try to define social justice, like I always think of like a set of values related to social justice. Mm -hmm. For me, what social justice is, it's, it's very community oriented and community engaged, right? It's about uh, listening to um, different members of a community, uh, people with different positionalities and experiences. It's about equity, right? It's about taking a really hard, critical look at injustice. Whereas a lot of the history of academic disciplines, including narrative to some extent, um, has been about not considering those things, right? About uh, either erasing them or leaving them out. Or um, I just talked with my class today about how, for example, white queer studies has often elided the question of race, right? Um, so social justice to me is it's community oriented and it's really looking at those um, issues of difference and really grappling with them head on. I heard some of those those words that really got me thinking. You, you brought up the idea of positionalities mm -hmm. and difference. And, you know, it kind of brings up some of my own thinking around what social justice means. You know, actually, I'm not a big fan of the term social justice. And the problem that I have with it is that it sounds very neat and packaged with a bow. It kind of sounds like, you know, one kind of justice for everybody. It will solve everyone's problems. But there's, I, I think of a lot of the infighting between the different kinds of um, activisms that are going on. My project right now has a lot to do with feminist narrative theory as well as feminism. But I kind of fell into feminism by accident. I had noticed these plots in the 19th century novels that I was studying, where women just didn't seem to fit in the plots that they were being made to, to fit. And that plot was often used to um, domesticate a lot of the female characters. And so as I delved into the history of feminism, as well as the theory um, that is operational in, in narrative studies, it was kind of a nightmare just because there was so much disagreement between the terms and the concepts and between the, the, the big players in the game, you know, and that's just kind of one type of injustice. There's, there's a part of me that still wow. likes the term social justice, that, that is both wary of this neatness, but also attracted by it. Like, wouldn't it be great if there was one kind of fight that could unify everybody. But I think that the key there would be to prioritize, as Cody says, these positionalities and these differences of, of having some kind of social justice that prioritizes difference, even disagreement, tension, friction that doesn't do away with those. I tend to agree with the difficulty of the term social justice. And actually, when I was sitting down trying to define it in preparation for this podcast, it, it ended up being a very difficult task. Uh, and I was also thinking something that you're bringing up, Angela, this idea of tension and this idea of disagreements. And it does seem to, it, the idea of social justice does seem to have to reckon with the, the kind of a coexistence of tensions and a coexistence of different points of view and different perspectives. And so it's it's not really everyone getting along as much as it is, I suppose, multiplying the points of view and, 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 and bringing people into the center that may have not been there before. 
pretty messy, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. And I completely agree with all of that. And and I'm really glad that as we're discussing these terms, we're also taking like a, a critical look at, you know, some of their uh, limitations or if not limitations, maybe just important considerations in them, right? Like one of my favorite essays I was thinking about, um, Angela and Chiara, while you were talking is um, Adrian Shaw's essay, The Trouble with Community. And it's written primarily about like game studies, but it's about how community like social justice can be one of those like fluffy, nice terms, right? That just sounds really nice, right? Everybody loves community. Who doesn't like community? Oh, it's so great. Um, but the community often involves a lot of tension, right? I, I mean, especially when you start looking at the way different communities relate to each other and how we often ourselves are members of multiple different communities, right? You know, we have many different aspects of our identities. One of the values I didn't quite get to, um, or rather forgot what I was saying, what social justice means to me too, it's often like, and this is something that's so hard to practice, which is why I think a lot of people are really, really bad at it, but it's like really intense and constant self-reflexivity too. It's taking a hard look at, you know, yourself, the assumptions that you make, um, the different biases that we bring into this work, right? The different, you know, community uh, assumptions and values and expectations. Uh, if we're going to deal with difference, it really requires us to do that work too, right? And I think that doesn't happen a lot of times because people just go straight to defensiveness whenever something uncomfortable shows up. It's like, oh, I don't know about this. This is sort of outside my wheelhouse or outside my experience. And so I'm uncomfortable with it and I'm just going to shut down. Just my thoughts. I completely agree. Like, the tensions are there and the, it's not like resolving them. It's 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 sticking with the trouble. Oh, that was that was <laughs> so great. This and is I kind of one of the big difficulties I have of of of, I guess, doing anything for social justice um where you know Cody you kind of brought up about not being defensive and and examining your own biases and it can be kind of um a joyless process at times it's about communities being in themselves sort of introspective right so that it's not always on you know the person from you know a marginalized or excluded community to always have to be the voice that's reminding people like hey white folks think about race um yep, yep. you know like if like we white folks can amongst ourselves also, you know, be a part of that change, right? About like, you know, you don't have to wait until there's a black person in the room in order to, you know, start taking this seriously. You know, this should be part of our constant practice with ourselves. And that's part of what excites me so much about this initiative with narrative is I think that narrative is in a really great place to, to continue doing that work, right? Like we've seen in recent conferences that this work has started and, and my hope is that, you know, we as a narrative community of narrative scholars comes together and and really, you know, takes that hard look at ourselves and like and starts to do that work of, you know, educating and growing on this rather than just sort of waiting for people with various positionalities to show up and tell us what to do. These ideas of self-reflexivity sound very pedagogical to me. And I know, Cody, at some point you brought up the idea of teaching um, just now. And I'm just I'm wondering what both of you think about the relationship between teaching and social justice or between teaching and narrative for social justice. One of my biggest investments in, in teaching narrative with my students, um, and even classes that aren't, you know, specifically about narrative. I mean, I teach in media studies, right? So not all of what we do is about um, narrative or storytelling, but it's always at least a part of the classes because 
And, and this comes out of uh, a couple of my mentors when I was a grad student really encouraged me to think about like, well, Cody, why do you care about narrative? Like, why does it mean anything to you? And, and that can be like a guide for like, okay, well, why should we care about narrative? And for me, I mean, like narrative was so important to me growing up as, you know, a queer trans person in a place that was very not friendly to that at all. Uh, narrative was a way that I imagined ways out of that. It was a way that I imagined futures beyond where I was. And it also helped me to realize growing up that, you know, I had a story to tell, you know, um, and everybody does. And so like when I teach, I that's one of my biggest things that I want my students to get out of narrative and storytelling when I teach it is that, you know, here are tools and concepts and other stories out there, you know, that can help you learn about the world around you, learn about yourself, but then also help you tell your own story. Uh, because I, I really want to empower my students to feel like your stories are valuable. Um, and I think that narrative has a great potential for helping that in, in you know, in teaching. That's that's such a wonderfully productive thought. And I was going to actually say something more on the critical side, on destroying things rather than creating things. Right. But I, <laughs> I was going to say that one of the one of the best things that my students say to me sometimes is that I teach first year students and they're like, they come to this realization that studying literature, it's all about questioning everything. They have these mind-blown moments where it's like we can't trust any narrative and I always like that because I think it seems to me like the budding of a, of a critical conscience that can then learn to deconstruct dominant narratives. I love both of these ideas and I, I'm thinking about um, how I, I often notice this pattern in students where um, they kind of come really excited and they're reading all these texts for the first time and it's kind of amazing to read these texts again through their eyes. Coming to a new author, it can really change your life. But then around midterm, sometimes they get horribly depressed because now they've become really good at detecting the racisms and the sexisms and the classes uh, structures and et cetera um, within these texts. And so I, I I do kind of want them to, as Kira says, you know, d destroy things and and to um, sit with that discomfort, as we had mentioned earlier. But I also really like Cody's idea of you know, of of finding an optimistic future. My my current work thinks a lot about for whom futurity might be an optimistic time and place. And I want that for my students as well, that after they do the work of questioning why certain texts give them the readerly affects that they do, um, not to just be terribly depressed and sort of think that lit literature is a black, dark place, but then but then of moving um beyond that um, and and realizing that there could be a beyond. This is me coming fresh out of my graduate seminar, but we were reading um, Munoz's Cruising Utopia, thinking a lot about, you know, what does uh, a critical hope for the future look like? What does a queer futurity look like that doesn't abandon, you know, negativity or critique, but doesn't just dwell there either, right? You know, that takes what we can learn from critique and that's like the important first step in you know creating any possibility, but then also using that then to imagine elsewhere, imagine you know a future not yet here. So I'm the one who suggested that sometimes doing the work of social justice can be a joyless endeavor, and I think sometimes it is. Um, but 
you know, it sounds like we're also talking about a complex joy here that is bound with confronting the violence of certain um, structures that we're trying to tear down um, and such. Uh, Cody, you, you brought up this term critical hope, which I think is um, really generative. When I think about like, you know, our scholarship and narrative or in other fields, one of my big motivating questions has always been like, who is this for? And if it's just for, you know, uh, the small audience of people who are well-versed in critical theory and, you know, these sorts of things, then I, I don't really see much point to it. I mean, that, that's the point where I start to lose sort of a base and like, well, what is this doing for anybody? Um, and so I really try to, you know, make my work um, something that, is approachable, right? Something that is playful, that is, um, you know, getting people to see something in a different light um, and really community engaged. I, you know, I mentioned that earlier, but for me, that's that's where the rubber sort of meets the road, right? Is where it's engaged with a community, you know, it's, it's addressing, you know, somebody's lived experience. It's, you know, um, seeking to, yeah, represent somebody's story or um, to work with them. Uh, those are the things where it gets, you know, it has a practice to it really clearly for me. Yeah, I think I, I, I agree with that. And I, I think, I think at some point in my, you know, when I started my English degree, and I was told that um, I should talk about the text and other people outside the text, there's always been something in me that has gone like, but, but those people exist. There's just something about for example, forgetting the author or forgetting that a text is produced in a context, in a community of people that read it in certain ways, of people that interpret it in certain ways, that it's just, it's just very hard to forget, especially when you're working, I guess, like I do with literature that is about or written by groups that have been marginalized and, and silenced and oppressed. There is an active effort to try and gain a voice. And so things like narrative voice, they take on this whole other meaning, like Susan Lancer in, in Fictions of Authority brings up this point that voice is a term that resonates politically. So I feel like when we talk about narrative and we say things like narrative voice, I can't help but hearing what it means. And first person voice as well, the idea of gaining a voice as a person, it, for me, it's not divorceable from looking at the technicalities of how first person voice works i got a bit entangled there but i'll 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 recon i'll make the example that i was making in the notes as well like i feel like the sense in which the words that we use sometimes in narrative theory like unreliable narration or can we trust the narrator or um who is seeing here who is speaking I feel like those terms resonate outside text as well. Unreliability and trusting in what someone says and being able to speak and being able to see or being able to not be seen, for example. All these things that happen in text happen outside of text in ways that have ethical and political implications. Um, and so I feel it's very hard for me to uncouple those those two things. That's really beautiful. And it kind of asks us the question what a narrative is as well, like what are its limits and boundaries and who gets to say where closures are? Yeah, uh, coming from, you know, I, I come from an English background and so like literary studies, but um, my work uh, for the last 10 years now has focused on video games and game studies. Um, and 
as you may or may not be familiar with in game studies, there's like a really contentious foundational debate, if you want to call it that, about whether or not video games are narrative, because it was, you know, people were saying like, oh, well, games are not narratives. They're, you know, they're systems of play. They're um, these, are, you know, they're just not narrative. Uh, and this relates back to your point, Angela, in terms of I am very much a narrativist, as it was characterized in that debate, and that I see narratives everywhere. Um, almost anything is a narrative to me or could be a narrative. Um, so I definitely acknowledge that tendency in myself. But I really love the way Kiara expressed that, right, in that, you know, narratives are not just limited to novels or to films or to, you know, particular media texts, they're also things that we're generating and engaging in all the time. That's one of the main focuses of my current research project, which is looking at video games sort of as an example of how, you know, we're always generating stories, you know, when we're playing, when we're doing, when we're navigating the world around us, we're, we're generating stories as we're doing that. Whether or not they get actualized or told to anybody, uh, you know, that, that's another question. But that I see like how it's really important, I think, to consider how these narrative concepts that we have could really and often very much do relate to cultural narratives, community narratives, you know, things that aren't maybe necessarily tied to any particular text, but they're nevertheless stories that are really important and everywhere around us. I think one of the only things I would add, and I think this might be related to the question of, you know, why is it important for the study of narrative to engage with social justice? And, you know, what is narrative for social justice is one of the things that I've encountered a lot in the diversity work I've done, but even before that, you know, just being a scholar in these fields is often that any attention that gets drawn to um, social justice, especially in terms of, of race and gender and sexuality and class, um, the one of the real dangers of this work is, um, and I think it's a danger that's sort of in a lot of different fields right now, is that this work gets siloed um, in a way, right? Like, so that, oh, well, race, that's just the prominence of the critical race scholars. Uh, qu queer, that's just the, that's just the area for, you know, queer narratologists, you know, uh, the rest of us, yeah, we don't care. In inevitably, you know, in a really interdisciplinary field like narrative, you can't, you know, keep track of and read everything. But nevertheless, I think there's a real danger in that siloing. And part of what I see as being really important for the study of narrative is not viewing these as special interest topics, right? Like the, this isn't just, you know, something, you know, over there that those people can work on it and I don't have to think about it or worry about it. Um, but rather that it, it's something that, you know, everybody needs to be engaged in, in in some way. One of the things that I think narrative really has going for it is that, in post-classical narratology, you know, a lot of these fields are taught side by side with each other, right? We get queer and feminist narratology alongside cognitive narratology. I'd like to see a lot more intersections between those yet. I completely agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially when it comes to embodiment, I would say. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the siloing, yeah, it's, it's really making me think, especially at the fact that study of narrative is being done by all sorts of so-called specialist fields that don't come under the rubric of narratology or narrative studies. Like I've been thinking of, you know, the inception of trans studies, for example, with, you know, Sandy Stone or Jay Prosser, and those are works on narrative. They are, I feel like Jay Prosser's Second Skins is essentially a work of narratology, but this 
meetings are not often they're not often fostered or they're not often pointed out and I, I would like to see more integration with narrative being done outside of the banner of narrative theory because <laughs> uh, there's so much valuable stuff out there I feel. It is a term narrative theory that tends to be very hungry and kind of swallow up other fields. That's really great. And it speaks to kind of a change in my own field where um, there's more and more scholars, 19th century scholars, kind of realizing um, how much these are intertwined, not just moving beyond uh, intersectionality, which has been a great framework, but not just looking at intersections, but looking at something even more deep rooted, more intertwined, more inseparable. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Batensky has this great phrase, um, casual racism, which she uses to denote exactly what it sounds like, the casualness of racism coming up in Victorian texts, how it's often just a throwaway rather than something that is being explicitly problematized, that it, that it, its casualness and its, its, form, its informality is um, reflective of how much a lot of Victorian concepts of identity were built upon race. Um, and this is really um, helpful. And, and, and I kind of wish that I'd come to some of this work um, earlier on as a student, like really I could have used um, some of these discussions and some of these pieces as an undergraduate student, you know, being um, someone Chinese of, of um, first generation parents, there was this kind of idea that literature looked a certain way and it didn't look like me. Um, and so it was kind of, race didn't really enter into my mind reading a lot of Victorian texts um, as an undergraduate. Uh, and I wish that it had, I think it would have made me a more informed scholar um, early on but it is precisely kind of this unsiloing of the siloed categories that would help a, a lot of students um and and critics mm -hmm. one example that comes to mind um from um Brody's book Impossible Purities is this idea she points out in this one book uh one novel by Thackeray that um the main characters there there's one of the main heroines um has a very illicit sexuality and she's often framed in these improper ways. And when she's being framed as such, she's often called dark or, or, or she's blackened in these visual mm -hmm. um, ways. And it kind of just shows how blackness becomes intertwined with this white character's illicit sexuality. You had mentioned like wishing that you had encountered some of these works earlier. And that really resonated with me thinking about my own sort of trajectory in terms of like, a lot of the work that so informs what I'm doing now, I didn't encounter until like my my comprehensive exams or afterward, uh, just because it, it wasn't a, a part of a lot of the, you know, the curricula, like critical theory classes I was taking and stuff like that. And I remember that same sort of, and here we are, you know, like I'm very aware that the argument, you know, the debates about what should be on the syllabus have been ongoing for decades. And yet here we are still dealing with this issue of like, I took a, a critical theory class where it was like, we're going to be reading uh, white men for, you know, 12 of the 16 weeks. And then we'll have a black week where we look at Du Bois. And then we'll have a queer and feminist week where we look at Judith Butler. And it was like... <laughs> I guess it was there, technically, uh, but like we're still having that argument, right? So much of our time gets wasted sort of continually coming back to diversity work 101 
Like, it's just coming back to, like, hey, these people exist. Maybe you should think (laughs) about them. Um, And, like, we just continually seem to have that discussion over and over and over again. Whereas, like, a lot of the folks who are working in these areas are, like, you know, (laughs) we're ready to move past that, right? We're, We're ready to, like, actually get into, like, what changes can we make? What structural things can we transform? Um, but then we just keep coming back to these same arguments about include people of color on your syllabi, include queer and trans folks on your syllabi. Yeah, it it makes me think back to what Kira had said about how, um, you know, the difference between texts and people mm-hmm. and that um, some people haven't had the chance yet to be talked about, about, about biographically in certain ways. I mean, I know that, you know, with women and um gender non-conforming subjects and racialized subjects are talked about biographically in a lot of harmful ways, but, but in other ways um, they have not. Um, And this, I think extends to critics as well, reading the text that, you know, we also have career biographies and that seeing, seeing ourselves represented. I mean, it sounds so, so simple, but, but really it it is kind of about that, 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 that we do exist and seeing that reflected on the syllabus or in DEI work or other types of work is really helpful. Again, I feel like I'm saying something really simple, but that's what I mean. And you're right, Angela, that, you know, it's, it is, it's such a surface thing, something that's so obvious in a lot of ways, and yet it's so important. And, and it is frustrating to have to constantly go back to it. But I think it is just, it's a really practical thing that I, I think that we just have to engage with, um, and really look critically at what we're teaching and how we're teaching it if we ever want this to change, right? So that it's not us discovering things way after we should have, or, you know, just being completely unaware of entire fields of scholarship until, you know, much later than, you know, we finally find it. Yeah, it can be a really sorrowful and even violent experience to feel belated in that way that I should have come to this earlier or that I missed something in my formative years by not reading something. So thanks, uh, Cody and Kara, for a really exciting and really invigorating talk. Anything else that um, you two want to plug? I would just briefly like to plug uh, the lab that I co-direct with Margaret Ree at UB. It's the Paula Light Lab. Um, and I'm trying to find, uh, if you just Google Paula Light Lab, it should come up. Uh, but again, it's a, it's a queer, feminist, and trans uh, new media lab that looks at poetry, electronic literature, and gaming. Um, and we've got some exciting stuff coming out of there. One of the ones that I'm working on right now is a game called Trans Folks Walking. Uh, it's a first-person sort of anthology of short stories uh, drawn from trans experiences. And so, like, each level has you play through a different trans experience and story. Um, and we're hoping to have our first release of that later this year. That's so exciting. That awesome. Um, yeah, any socials? You can find me on Twitter at... A-N-G underscore Y underscore do, D-U. Yeah, I'm also on Twitter at Chiara, which is C-H-I-A-R-A-P-G-4. And I'm on Twitter at at C-M-E-J-E-U-R. Next time, we'll hear from the rest of the podcast team, Carolyn, Torsha, and Gretchen, as they continue our conversation about narrative and social justice. Thank you for listening to this episode of the N4SJ podcast. Feel free to reach us at our email address, narrative, the number four, sj at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter 
our handle is at narrative the number four sj you can also join our facebook group called narrative for social justice finally the international society for the study of narrative annual conference takes place virtually from may 19th to the 23rd registration for participation without a paper presentation closes on may 22nd 